welcome to the latest Fifth Step podcast. Uh, today I'll be talking to Darren Ray, CEO of Fifth Step, um, about the uh, EU uh, referendum vote, whether or not the UK decides to leave or remain um, in, in a vote for Brexit. Um, so Darren, I'm here to ask you today, you know, what, what does it mean for data, data protection? Right at this point, Chris, it's, um, it's a good question. No one's really sure because the process of how um, Britain would exit the EU is, is not well defined. Um, there are some processes and procedures, but obviously organisations and companies who presently deal with Europe and specifically European data um, would want to continue, um, continue doing that. At the moment, um, it's not entirely clear how they would do that, but uh, at a high level, um, we're going to need to have, uh, on the assumption that we exit, we'd need to have a data protection directive equivalency. Um, at the moment, uh, the UK is subject to the data protection directive and we have our own uh, Data Protection Act. Now that would um, continue to be in place, okay, um, so we would um, we should logically continue to have equivalency, but that would may, or that may need to be re-ratified by uh, Europe or recertified by Europe to say that sure. that, 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 that that stands. Okay, okay. I mean, in terms of data protection, you know, uh, taking the insurance industry, for example, I mean, are, would you say that insurers are ready and they're prepared and got their ducks on, you know, in a row for you know what what they should do in the in the event of a, of a vote for leave. I would say almost certainly not, Chris, because uh, because there's so much uncertainty. Um, if if we if Britain chooses to leave, then any data that um, whose subject is a European citizen, um, it can't be that data can't be hosted outside of Europe without the permission of uh, of the data subject. Uh, you know, in other words, okay. the you or I, the individual to whom that data. Um, is about so. If that uh, if we exit, then it could mean that, uh, particularly for life insurers or for personal lines insurers who are potentially storing a lot of personal information um, about European citizens or European residents, rather, um, it could mean that that data is uh, currently stored here in the UK. Uh, if that's the case, then it may not be legal to do so. Um, after an exit, depending on the shape of the exit, of course, and uh, and there's going to be a lot of work if we do decide to um, exit um, to define what that means and how we will exit and which rules and regulations are going to remain equivalent and which are not. So how are you going to put in place, is there a process that can be put in place to help manage that change or what is that potential change? I mean, is a pro project management approach, for example, is that a, a useful way of doing it? Yeah, absolutely is, Chris. I mean, it's going to be um, on, a, on an exit decision, there will be a lot of work that needs to be undertaken by government to negotiate with Europe the, um, the terms and the nature of the exit. There will be a number of um, instances of organisations need, needing to um, lobby government and um, you know, potentially European representatives to ensure that um, certain things are, are, are left in place. But irrespective of the nature of that change, there's going to be significant amounts of change that we're going to have to manage in a, in a structured way. Uh, following a project management approach um, is obviously going to be the, be, uh, the best way to, to do that. Mm. Who, who will lead this then? Would it be the, the COO of an organisation, I mean, the, the CIO 
um, having having a say in, in how, how processes are put in place, or is it very much a is it a C-suite, C suite, you know, board level issue? Uh, it's a it will definitely be a board and C suite um, level um, uh, decision or or, or approach. Um, the you know the decision will be made obviously by the uh, the voters and the population of the of the UK. The ramifications will uh, will ripple through. Uh, organisations such as insurance companies or anyone dealing with personal data. Mm. And now, personal data. It's important to remember or to remind people if uh, if they're uh, if they're really new. Uh, personal data is data that allows you to identify a living individual. Um, so um, you know, Chris Don at Twelve the High Street um, may be enough to identify. Uh, you as a living individual. If there's more than one Chris Don who lives there, then it may not be enough. Yes. Um, equally, um, you know, the man who owns the Porsche at 12 the High Street may also be enough to identify a living individual. It's mm. uh, you know, if you're the only man who owns a Porsche at 12 the High Street, then that's enough information to actually identify you. Unfortunately, not more than that. <laughs> the man who owns the Renault Scenic. More than <laughs> this, more. Well, there we go. There's all sorts of choices that people make. Um, so they, they're, uh, that's uh, the nature of um, of personal data that we need to uh, that organisations already deal with. Now. Who's actually going to be dealing with and responsible for this? That will vary between uh, organisations. Certainly the board is going to have an interest because it will become a legal uh, requirement or yeah. may become a legal requirement and therefore the board and the C-suite are going to be uh, involved. Um, in organisations that have a uh, data officer um, or a chief data officer um, in some instances, um, that person is likely to be the person dealing with and sponsoring any of the, the, the change projects and running those through. Right. Um, in the absence of a, a data officer, it will very often fall to um, you know, the two members of the C-suite that you mentioned, the COO uh, uh, or the um, CIO. Okay. Well, it, prom it obviously promises to be a pretty tumultuous change if it, if it does happen um, in a few days' time. Um, and it comes on the back, really, of uh, there have already been some quite major changes, to data protection changes in the last 12 months, haven't there? What with the... Uh, on the December the 15th last year, the European Parliament and the European Council agreed the EU data protection reform. Um, and the whole idea behind that, I understand, is that it promises to make Europe fit the digital age, digital age, really. Uh, but what is the general data protection regulation, or GDPR, as it's uh, more commonly referred to? But what, what is its scope, uh, and what do organisations now need to do to comply with the new regulation? Well, Chris, it's uh, really very much a, a follow-on expansion of the, um, the Data Protection Directive, which um, forms the, the current, e, uh, current UK regulation, um, or underlines the current UK regulation, the Data Protection Act. Uh, GDPR, though, broadens uh, the, the, the scope quite dramatically. It has um, some sharper teeth than the, uh, than the old, uh, than the DPD um, does. Um, the fines can be far greater. Um, what kind of fines could you expect? I mean, is it, I, mean I've, I think I've seen here, um, could, is it right, is it true to say that it could be up to 20 million euros or figures about 4% of turnover? Is that yeah, really whichever is a higher, that's correct, yeah. Um, and the reason for that is because um, you know, previously the fines were not that great and some organisations would... Um, uh, would flout the rules and say, well, that's just the cost of doing business. We get a fine 
Uh, it's a cost of doing business, but uh, the fines were not large enough to actually dissuade them from uh, from operating the way that they did. Um, these fines now are, um, you know, designed to be punitive. Uh, they're designed to um, ensure that people, um, uh, the organisations, com uh, comply. So, one of the sorts of things that uh, could could lead to a fine. What if you could you know, give us any examples of what what might result in a, a major punitive uh, sanction? Well, some of the uh, um, well, the 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 nature of how the fines will actually be divvied uh, divvied out will actually be decided by uh, the data protection uh, authority in your uh, in your region. But some of the examples uh, would be, um, you know, not not following some of the major tenets of the um, of the GPD. Um, so, for example. Um, Using data for a purpose other than, than than what it was collected for. So, if I collect your data, Chris, yeah. and I collect it in order to provide you a service, and then I sell that data to someone else, that's that's not allowed because I've told you I'm collecting the data to provide a service, and then I've actually turned your data into a into a monetary, yeah. um, uh, you know, to an income source, and uh, and sold that data on. That's not allowed. So, uh, those kind of things typically uh, will. Uh, will create fines, but the GT, GDPR actually extends uh, things far, um, you know, far further, um, and it has a number of rights that um, organisations have to be able to uh, provide and service. Um, so the um, uh, the right to erasure, for example, um, right. which is um, which is very often or has been summarised um, in some places as uh, as to be the right to be forgotten. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the ability for uh, for someone to say, um, "I want my data erased," um, you know, those kind of things. So, if an organisation uh, were to tell someone that their data had been erased and then actually not erase it, for example, okay, um, that would likely um, in, in, in incur fines. Whether they would be the maximum would depend on the nature of uh, sure. uh, and, and scope of the breadth, okay. uh, breadth of the uh, breach. So the implications of GDPR for, say, for an insurance company, uh, we know, as I understand it, it could, its scope means that once private information, uh, uh, that it means that private information, for example, must be deleted once the policy is cancelled, doesn't it? So stuff like that. What else? Do, what other implications are there? Yeah, it means that um, you're exactly right, Chris. That um, the amount of time that you can keep data. Um, um, that identifies a living individual um, after after the service has been provided, uh, that starts to uh, reduce now. What's considered to be reasonable uh, reduces. Now that doesn't mean that organisations can't maintain uh, data. Uh, so, for example, actuarial uh, information um, is still required, but it means it has to be anonymised, and it has to be anonymised um, and shown to be anonymised, uh, uh, you know, far more quickly. So. If um, you know if your data, if you have a claim and then um, you know you cancel your policy, um, you know sometime later, um, the fact that you held a policy is um, is there and will be retained for what's considered to be a reasonable reasonable period of time. Yeah. But after that period has expired, then that data needs to be um, erased. Um, and where there's other information that doesn't identify you as a living individual, um, that information has to be anonymised. So you can't any longer be Chris. You know, Chris Don had a claim for you know cr uh, crashing his Renault Scenic. Okay, okay. So that's where you need to. You know, I suppose now 
companies need to start thinking about employing, if they haven't done so, data protection officers. Is that, is that, is that happening? Is there, is there a growing market for such a person? Um, yeah, I don't know that there's a, a, a growing market. Many organisations will actually have those, um, you know, where they where they have a, re a requirement, they'll have uh, a person who's nominated um, and identified. Some of those, um, some organisations will be registered um, with the Information Commissioner's Office and actually have a, uh, an individual identified as their, yeah. uh, their data prote protection officer. Um, one of the requirements of the GDPR is that you do have a nominated uh, person, and that person um, uh, that goes for really goes for all size um, companies that have a nominated person. But for larger companies, they actually have to have um, a, you know a person whose um, whose primary responsibility is, uh, is is data protection. I suppose it's something you know from a fifth step point of view. Uh, I mean, you you offer sort of services. Area. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We, um, you know, obviously, as our uh, providing um, IT leadership and executives as a service, yeah. um, you know, we provide individuals who can, um, you know, can uh, provide um, that data protection officer okay. uh, sort of kind of capability. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, along similar lines, I mean, there's been lots of sort of uh, uh, there are lots of data acts uh, and. Um, well, sort of changes in, the, in this area. I mean, uh, along with the similar lines, what is what is safe harbour? I mean, it's, a, it's an important principle that's come out in the last like twelve months, so isn't it? Have you got any words to say about that? Yeah, I'm a, so safe harbour is quite a, a complex um, a piece of uh, or a complex a complex agreement. Okay, right. it really came to its it came to the fore about sixteen years ago, is where um, it first uh, came around as the. Um, you know the Data Protection Act and the ramifications of that on, on um, you know a rapidly increasing and expanding um, internet and internet-based services became apparent. Now the Data Protection Act uh, or the Data Protection Directive um, uh, states that um, that data should stay within uh, essentially within uh, the European U Union. There are some um, some. Uh, Sides to that, but essentially within the European Union. Yeah. Now that means that the personal data cannot be sent to the US, for example, because the the data privacy laws in the US are um, well either non-existent or they're structured very differently, depending on the language. They, 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 they come from a very different perspective, Chris. Right. Essentially, right. the European uh, model is that the date that. Um, the data belongs to me as an individual, and I am giving you permission to use it by giving it to you. The American model tends to be more based around you are giving me that information, therefore that information is mine. I have to pay to store it and to, uh, to do things so I can then do with it as I want. Right. Uh, the European model obviously um, says you can only collect it and use it for the purpose for which you've told the individual you're collecting it for. Yes. So. Um, safe Harbour um, was a means of uh, working around um, uh, those uh, very different uh, approaches. So a Safe Harbour agreement would uh, be an agreement between two organisations or two parts of the same organisation um, and it would allow them to um, exchange data uh, about European residents, personal data about European residents, uh, and store that in the in, in the US or process it in the US. And it's important to understand when you say processing, that doesn't just mean um, processing in the sense of oh, you know, it pops up on someone's screen, they make a decision, you know, yes or no or whatever, and it carries on through the workflow. Um, processing in the data uh, protection directive yeah. um, sense actually means. 
um, to deal with the data in any way. It can mean that it's touched by human hands. It may just sit on a hard disk somewhere. So actually hosting information yes. can actually, um, can actually um, or is actually considered to be uh, processing it. Okay, okay. Okay, so uh, well, we've, we've sort of covered off a lot about data there, and um, I mean the implications of, of, of a Brexit are we're talking about potential uh, data equivalency um, outside of the mm -hmm. European Union. Similar, in, along similar lines. Um, I mean, what about in terms of solvency two equivalency, uh, which is an important, you know, an important consideration out there for insurers at the moment. Um, is that something that you've uh, you've touched on before? Would be interested in talking about here. Oh yeah, absolutely, Chris. Um, um, so, solvency two is a very important uh, piece of uh, legislation um, for uh, the insurance um, sector, um, and it's something that's only really gone live this this year. Um, it's not had a full year of operation. Um, I don't think you'll find any insurers who are going to be looking to. Uh, to change this, um, change their model again. Um, no. It's been a very expensive, and continues to be an expensive um, change to the to the way of uh, way of working yep. to, to previously. So, what would solvency to equivalency look like? Well, actually, because the UK is already operating um, a solvency to approach, and the FCA uh, and the PRA are um, you know have been uh, very heavily involved in um, you know in the formation of um, yes. Solvency 2 uh, and obviously now the regulation of it or the enforcement of it. Well, what you find in, uh, in other regions, you know, for Bermuda for example, Bermuda has just recently um, uh, achieved Solvency 2 equivalence. Yeah. Um, they had to go through a process and the uh, Bermuda Monetary Authority, the um, equivalent to uh, uh, the FCA and the, and the PRA, um, they um, made sure that their regulations were um, seem to be equivalent and to upholding the tenets of, of Solvency 2 yes. um, as it's been implemented in Europe. So I, I would suggest that we would have to go through that same process again with the FCA um, having to uh, convince um, other European regulators that, um, that, that Solvency 2, <coughs> the UK implementation of Solvency 2 is still fit for purpose. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, when you, you, you uh, when you go out and meet uh, clients and, and people in the market, when you talk to, say, members of the C-suite, I mean, have they outlined to you what they believe, say, a Brexit would mean for their for their companies and for their people, and for their, their systems or their data? I mean, what are they telling you? It's a good question, Chris, in as much as I'm, I'm not sure um, that many organisations at the moment have worked this all the way through. We know that many organisations are thinking about the implications of, a, you know, of, uh, of the UK leaving Europe. At the moment though, I think there's a lot of people who are playing a wait and see because um, it could mean very little. It could mean that uh, you know, for the next three years all the laws as they stand at the moment are completely 100% compatible with um, you know, the European regulatory requirements, and therefore we see no difference. Yeah. Over the you know over a greater period though, um, Europe will start to change its regulatory framework, and the UK will need to keep track with that if we want to continue to do business in Europe the way that we are today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we've talked about a lot about processes, people, I suppose. I mean, in terms of. The technology are there, are there any sort of technology technology standards that can uh, can be applied to uh, manage this, a, a transition? 
wait for an exit or not really Chris no I mean I think um, that there will be a lot more information that comes out um, you know after the vote has taken place and after you know if the decision is to leave as to what shape that will that will come in but I think one of the key aspects though which refers back to GDPR that we were talking about earlier on yeah um, you know the GDPR uh, requirements don't actually come into force until 2018 um, so organizations are thinking they've got a little bit of time to actually get that done but some of the key changes that are included in GDPR um, are things like uh, the, you know, the right to erasure, the uh, the right to the transport of data, and a number of other uh, major tenants of um, you know, the GDPR. the The key thing there is that if you're if an organisation is changing its underlying uh, policy administration systems for a, you know for a, uh, an insurance company or they're changing their banking systems yeah. but actually the systems that they're looking to implement or part of their requirements gathering now is going to be does it adhere to can it adhere to the requirements of uh, GDPR because you ideally you don't want to be implementing a brand new system um, Implement that, you know, part way through 2017, and then have to go back and make a, you know, a number of changes. So you saying this needs to be part of your business continuity? Less your business, not less of your business continuity, more of your forward schedule of change. Right. Is if you are implementing a new system, um, your know, policy administration system, sticking with the insurance example, then you need to make sure that you've got um, the GDPR requirements as part of your business requirements. Okay. moving forward and if you aren't if you're not looking to change any of your systems in a major way over the next year that actually you understand the requirements of GDPR and the implications on your existing um, systems so that you can actually um, you go into 2018 with um, with compliant systems and that uh, that you're not going to be looking over your shoulder and you know yeah. concerned that uh, uh, an information commissioner is going to be uh, asking for um, you know, reports uh, to sure. demonstrate your adherence. Okay. Well, I think we've covered up a lot about, some, we talked about personal lines and a little bit of life insurance, but, you know, the market we're in, we're only like five minutes walking from this, you know, this office where we're talking here, we're only five minutes away from Lloyds of London. Yes. Um, you know, we've got dozens of managing agents out there, you know, they're so-called big ticket, some commercial type of uh, syndicates and insurance companies. Um, I mean, this this potentially could be devastating, couldn't it? For the Brexit, yeah, the Brexit. Brexit. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, it could be devastating, Chris. Um, it, it really just depends on the shape of the exit. And I know I've said that a couple of times now, and it's uh, worth reiterating. Um, it, it's yeah, worth yeah, reiterating yeah. because this, you know, from the from where we are right at this moment, and I suspect, you know, the 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 days and weeks and potentially months after the exit decision will really shape um, the next steps and what needs to be done and what. What organisations consider to be a priority. You know, one of the main things that organisations are going to obviously be considering is, you know, uh, particularly the financial services sector. You know, as you said, we're in the heart of um, the city of London. Um, you know, many of those financial services companies aren't very mobile. Some uh, may not like the idea that Britain's exit uh, exit Europe. Yeah. Um, if that's you know, if that takes place, then some of them may decide to relocate elsewhere. So they're their challenge may actually be as simple or as complex as you know, relocating. They may consider that to be a, an easier and a more predictable change than um, you know, uh, trying to re-implement or go for solvency to equivalency, sure. uh, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. 
You'll be you'll be hosting an event actually, I believe, in, in uh, well, just about a week's time, the day before. We will. Yes, I mean, you're, I mean, I think one of one of the themes that you're going to be exploring is managing uh, disruption and, and change in, in, in today's world. And obviously, Brexit's going to come as part of that. What's going to be happening at the event? I mean, are there still spaces available for people to come? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And uh, the best uh, the best thing to do is to come along and visit our website. Um, www.fifthstep.com and um, go to the uh, the Fifth Sense area there and you'll see um, amongst our blog posts uh, you'll see the invitation uh, and the details. Uh, Can you give us event. a flavour of what's going to be spoken at, 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 at that event? Yeah, sure. Well, we've got a number of um, um, people who are very close to uh, financial services sector and, um, and we've also got a, a keynote um, speaker um, uh, who will talk uh, about things about managing uh, volatile and uh, un unpredictable um, um, projects? He managed a major project in Afghanistan. He, he did. He yeah, I was, yeah, I was, yeah, yeah. That's um, um, that's uh, that's very true, and it's a very uh, obviously very challenging, very different uh, to what most of us deal with in our in our everyday life. Um, but he's going to be talking to us uh, around some of the challenges and that how they apply or can be applied um, to. Uh, the the sectors that we usually deal with, uh, and then we're going to have um, uh, guest speakers from uh, various parts of uh, the insurance um, sector, and obviously we're going to have uh, Deborah Bale who heads up oh, the right. uh, yeah. um, uh, the uh, change team um, here at Fifth Step, uh, and she'll be talking about how we've been helping uh, clients um, uh, implement some of that change and take advantage of some of these uh, these new ways of, of thinking of change and managing. Um, uh, constant change. Sure, sure. Okay, well, I think that's pretty much uh, covered all the things we wanted to talk about today. So thanks for that, Darren. Uh, there's some interesting, thoughtful stuff there. Um, I suppose you know the next podcast we we do in a few weeks' time will be following the uh, the uh, the vote on the 23rd. It'll be absolutely fascinating to see what what people come up uh, come up with and, and decide to do. Uh, in, the way, in the in the event of a Brexit, I'm sure we'll have a very interesting discussion. So. Well, we might have a we might have a very different view, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think so. Anyway, thanks for that. Thanks very much, Chris. Yeah. Yeah.